This is episode 10 of Researching Happy. Uh, I am Matthew Asiello, and thank you for joining us for all of these episodes so far. It's been a really fun ride so far. We have today someone who I'm really excited to share, um, uh, Dr. Chiara Ruini. So Chiara is in Bologna um, and has been working on, uh, with along with her team, just some really exciting work and consistent work for almost, I think, 20 years or something like that. So really focused on uh, something that, you know, is really relevant to the dual continuum model for those who've been uh, tagging along, uh, which is the promotion of mental well-being in clinical populations. So, you know, really understanding what does it look like to try and promote the well-being of those with the diagnosed mental illness. Um, and I think what you hear from from Chiara is a real um, nuance, I think, to how that should be done. I think when we talk about it in sort of really general terms, uh, we overlook some of the sensitivities that are needed when we're think when we're talking about treatment and 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 clinical support. So we we uh, we talk we talk Italy. We talk about you know cultural and protective factors, we, particularly of the sort of the southern Mediterranean, and um, and, and, you know, I should share some insights of, of the migrants that I've seen in Australia, the Italian migrants that I've seen, and I guess the Greek migrants as well. Um, yeah, and so it just makes for a really fun episode, basically. There were a couple of technical glitches along the way. So Chiara was an absolute superstar, kind of uh, being flexible and, 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 and understanding. So a bit of the video drops out on Chiara's end, unfortunately, but um, hopefully it's basically a smooth ride. Um, in terms of the show, it's, yeah, it's been 10 episodes. Um, we've had listeners from around the world. I thought I would quickly quickly um, read the list of countries. So we've got Australia. This is in rank of um, percentage listened. Australia, US, UK, Denmark, New Zealand, Germany, Ireland, Philippines, Netherlands, Brazil, Egypt, Taiwan, China, Canada, Thailand, Turkey, Israel, Japan, Austria, Finland, Spain, and Hong Kong. So, um, yeah, really pleased to, to see that. Uh, I guess that's the power of the internet. I do note that there are no Italians in that uh, little chart, so hopefully we can do something about that. Um, but otherwise, enjoy this show. You can, um, you can help support the show by, um, by sharing and subscribing. I think I'm starting to get a bit of a, a better idea of who's enjoying the show and who's following and listening, and um, it looks to be you know, a lot of students. Um, a lot of professionals who are focused on well-being, um, you know, coaches and, and HR, for example, uh, and then uh, like other researchers as well, which I think is really cool. So, if you know someone like that, share this share this um, podcast with them, and um, you can support the show as well uh, by following along at uh, at locals, and I'll, I'll have a link in the in the in the in the bio where you can support the show from like five bucks a month if, if that's something that you're interested in doing it. And thanks to those who have, uh, who have actually taken that up. So if you're enjoying the show, please reach out to me and let me know. Um, it makes a difference and, and it's, I'm really trying to learn from, you know, what's working, what's not working. So with that, enjoy the episode and um, yeah, thank you. Okay, welcome back to Researching Happy. This is the podcast all about the world of mental health and well-being. And we're trying to bring together 
researchers from around the world who are doing fantastic work with something to do with happiness or well-being um, or related. So very, very pleased to welcome Dr. Chiara Ruini, uh, who's with us today. She's an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Bologna in the Department of Psychology. Since 2006, she's been teaching the course Clinical Applications of Positive Psychology for Students, attending the Master's Program in Clinical Psychology. Chiara Rooney has authored more than 70 articles published in peer-reviewed international journals. Welcome, Chiara. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for this invitation. Nice to be here with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and great to have a uh, an Italian on. Obviously, my uh, my family are from Italy, so this is a this is a nice thrill. Uh, before we start, obviously, I could be practicing some of my pretty average Italian, but um, we'll stick to English. Uh, yes. But before we start, uh, prima di tutto devo dirti la verità che uh, a me piace la pizza con ananas. No, no way, Matt. No, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's not Italian. <laughs> so for those who don't speak Italian, which I'm guessing is probably most people, I just admitted that I actually really like pizza with pineapple, and that's a—it's a disgrace to my heritage. I know, but that's. <laughs> so, if you want to cancel this call now, Chiara, you can. <laughs> I would do that. It's just yeah. spoiling a good pizza, putting the pineapple on it, <laughs> according right. to the Italian standard, of course. Yeah, look, and I think they're right to be honest with you. But um, anyway, if you can forgive me, we'll we'll continue. So, um, Chiara, I. On this podcast, I think we've had a real interest in um, the dual continuum model of mental health. So that idea that it is possible to build well-being despite the presence of a mental illness. And um, when it comes to that topic and, and actual interventions and clinical work, I think your name is, along with, um, with Professor Fava, are just top of the list. So I'd love to hear... Um, a bit of a summary of your work and, 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 and we'll get in straight into well-being therapy if we can. Yes, sure. Well, uh, well-being therapy and the, the, the promotion of well-being in clinical practice has been basically my theme of my career. I've been doing that since my PhD. So I started working with Professor Fava. Back then, he was my mentor at the PhD program in, in the University of Bologna. And it was at the beginning of the of the century basically of the millennia and back then uh, the real problem in clinical practice and especially in mental health was the uh, prevention of chronic depression or you know the relapses in in, in the in severe depression mm -hmm. and this was really a um, huge theme in for for clinical psychologists for psychiatrists and that's when basically Professor Fava and our group of, of, of uh, clinician, clinician and, and researchers, we start uh, approaching the positive psychology perspective and the, 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 the various model of, of well-being provided back at that, at that time. And one of the most interesting one was the eudaimonic well-being perspective, because basically mm -hmm. if you look at the theme, if you look at the dimension of eudaimonic well-being using Reef model or maybe also other similar model, but the thing is that uh, uh, individual with affective disorder, depression, anxiety, OCD, they tend to have impaired or distorted level on exactly that type of functioning of positive functioning. So maybe the idea 
back then was that promoting those dimension of well-being could serve to have to help those patients to achieve a more balanced approach with mm. life and then to have less risk of relapsing into their illness so that was basically the the the, the baseline the the, the yeah. starting point great and so the um Eudaimonic well-being, I guess that's something probably for the audience they might not have heard of before. Would you mind sort of giving a quick summary of what you mean by that? Yeah, eudaimonic well-being is basically the, the, the type of well-being which was described by Greek, Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. And it calls for basically positive human functioning. It's not only about uh, being happy and uh, content or being, you know, in a positive mood, but rather mm -hmm. is to have a specific uh, um, uh, issues that, which makes life worth living, basically. And it refers to uh, having a positive interpersonal functioning. So being being an important part of the community and having positive relationships with family with uh, colleagues at work with all the mm -hmm. people that basically you interact with and also having a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in life so that you think that also your daily activities are worthy are important and then you can realize yourself through your daily living and uh, and uh, overall, um, eudaimonic well-being is that branch of well-being uh, which put a little less of attention on positive mood and a little more emphasis on uh, engagement, uh, mm -hmm. on achievement, of direction in life, on purpose in life, and all the important uh, um, connection with other people in your life being very yeah. very much summarized yeah perfect thank you that's very clear and so just to, to be so, so that we're getting the story correct so um your team were were noticing that clinician um sorry that uh, individuals were coming with with a diagnosis of depression you noticed that um they were coming with also low levels of that eudaimonic well-being um and 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 then an intervention was developed. Was that intervention to be, um, or a therapy, I guess, was developed? Was that to be in in um, combination with a traditional clinical therapy or, or by itself or, you know, one first and then the other? How did you think about delivering that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, our I think that our, at least initially, our approach was uh, um, unique because basically we combined the traditional therapy, mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. which is the evidence-based approach for depression, anxiety, and so on. So, and after that, uh, we combine uh, the promotion of well-being through this well-being therapy approach. Uh, and the, 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 the technique, the, 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 the steps are delivered in a sequential order. So it mm -hmm. means that uh, um, different, for example, from the Seligman approach or positive psychotherapy approach where uh, the promotion of well-being could begin since the very first uh, uh -huh. session. In our approach, uh, at least uh, when we, we, we tested the approach, we first um, start with symptom relief, 
and mm -hmm. then we move to the promotion mm -hmm. of well-being mm -hmm. so once we have helped the the, the, the the patients to feel a little bit better and to manage um uh, his or her symptoms then then uh, it is the time to um to start moving to address what's missing in his life mm -hmm. so for mm -hmm. example his or her life so maybe mm -hmm. it could be more satisfying relationships or a sense of the some specific uh, mm, uh, idea about uh, self-realization mm -hmm. mm, so according to the the, the 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 specific themes that the patients would bring into therapy we would work uh, in a in an individualized approach yeah. with with him yeah. or or, with, or her Okay, great. All right, so we are back with Chiara. Thank you so much for your for your patience and your uh, your flexibility, Chiara. So we were just discussing um, well being therapy. You you mentioned there was a bit of a timing strategy for well being therapy, which was to first, um, I guess, use some more traditional CBT techniques to reduce distress before going into some well being promotion activities. But my question was, um, how much well being? Uh, sorry, how much? Um, distress were you aiming for were you aiming for almost recovery before you started well-being promotion or what were you what were you working towards well in in uh, in our approach uh, um one important issue is the issue of staging so it means mm -hmm. that according to traditional psychopathology approach the symptoms have a specific uh, sequential order so it means that the um, Usually in depression or anxiety, there is a prodromal phase where symptoms are not so intense. And then if not treated, they progress and then they become intense in the acute phase of the disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's where usually patients ask for therapy or for treatment. And, and that's sometimes where psychiatrists can also prescribe drugs for, mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. for the. Mm -hmm up the, the the peak of the symptoms and after that uh, uh, the, the 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 treatment started to 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 uh, have its progress and uh, that's when basically um, the the residual phase of the disorder begin mm -hmm. and that's basically at that precise point uh, where we think that the promotion of well-being is really crucial because basically it means that after the, the, the acute phase of the symptoms is uh, over, basically um, the patient is not feeling well, not completely well, is not recovered, of course. And that's where the introduction of well-being can have really a very important booster effect. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to, to help the patients to become aware of... Uh, things that are not working in his or her life and where basically the patient is more open to make changes because he is not he or she is not so overwhelmed by distress and at the same time is not completely fine is not completely done with that so if we use this time perspective, uh, the promotion of eudaimonic well-being, uh, so a better 
relationship with others, a more sense of purpose and direction in life, uh, a sense of uh, having a contribution in family functioning, community and so on, becomes really appropriate in that precise moment of the therapy. And usually patients are very open to go on working on those issues. Mm. Yeah, okay. And yeah. so uh, av on average, how long does well-being therapy last? Is it, is it prescribed for a certain number of weeks or sessions? In our, um, in our research approach, so in the validation studies, we, we usually um, use the, a format of eight, ten sessions. Uh, but of course, uh, over the over the course of the of the <laughs> uh, the, the time, we have also extended uh, the treatment, and usually mm -hmm. we can also uh, have a, a longer a longer treatment or having an intense uh, eight uh, sessions, one per week, and then mm -hmm. maybe to have booster sessions, follow up sessions for a total of, uh, let's talk about six months, one year of therapy maximum in my clinical mm. perspective. And of course it depends on also the, on the patients and, and and his or her states, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can understand. And so, uh, yeah, fair enough that it would be very individual and tailored, but roughly speaking, say you did eight to 10 sessions over four months, what percent like how many of those sessions would be on the on the symptom focus and how much on the well-being promotion oh basically it depends i mean it depends uh, usually in the clinical practice if patients are also treated with drugs mm -hmm. and the symptoms are quite uh, responsive to, to that treatment Basically, we can dedicate uh, like three, four sessions to the traditional CBT approach and then move mm -hmm. to the remaining one to well-being promotion. Okay. Um, but I'm quite flexible. I mean, it depends. It depends. And sometimes yeah. uh, over the course of the, of the years, uh, I, I also... I also transformed the approach uh, into more nuanced approach. So sometimes it happens that during a session we discuss about symptoms, but then we move to well-being or vice versa, or we yeah. start by discussing some well-being issues and then maybe some uh, specific uh, indicators of symptomatology do appear. So it's more nuanced now. Yeah. It's more, no, I think, more natural. Sure. And then... Um... What are the types of activities or the sort of the, the techniques that you're using for the well-being promotion? Well, also in that case, uh, we, um, we discuss uh, with patients, uh, with clients, their specific goals. So let's see, for example, that a patient wants to improve uh, relationships, interpersonal mm -hmm. relationships. We may start with... Uh, um, finding strategies to dedicate more time to spend with friends, for example. Um, and it may imply that the patient has to reschedule some, some of the daily life activities. So maybe not being so focused on work uh, mm -hmm. and uh, being able to dedicate uh, weekends or, you know, uh, part of the daily life to, to spend some, some time with, with, with uh, friends. In Italy, we can uh, prescribe a coffee or aperitivo with, uh, with some friends that you don't see for a while or something like that. 
or it could be something uh, uh, some techniques are basically also common to other third wave psychotherapy so like for example act or mindfulness so -hmm. for example we can ask the the client to dedicate more time to himself or herself uh, doing uh, some meditation practice for example if uh, anxiety or tension also physical tensions are an issue Um, or we can uh, have a more uh, existential approach so um, basically after after a severe episode of depression maybe clients start to asking themselves if life is worth living if their uh, baseline uh, status is what they really want for themselves Mm. So that's a, that's when we can discuss about the concept of meaning in life, the concept mm-hmm. of uh, having purpose and uh, uh, consider life as worth living. And so we move into a more, let's say, existential type of interaction, which is not really about uh, prescribing activities or practical things, but it's a more uh, mentalization, reflective. Mm-hmm with 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 the client yeah no understood and and um are you noticing much trend in terms of you know there are say if we're talking about riff's model of well-being i think you've kind of covered off there's six aspects to well-being people can uh, can google it because i can't remember all six off the top of my head uh, maybe Kiara can but uh yes. um okay <laughs> so if you want i can autonomy. i can that's oh, oh, a test okay we'll see how it go purpose autonomy relationships Meaning in life, positive. Oh, I've already said that. Uh, what have I missed? Environmental mastery. Yes. And one more. Self acceptance. Self acceptance. See. So <laughs> probably that's my a, least really one. an issue. I, I remember them because self acceptance is one of the core issues that most of my clients do have. So, well, that was actually that was my question. What was what of those six? What's the core that comes up the most common? Self acceptance for sure. And really? with self-acceptance, by self-acceptance, I'm 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 uh, uh, considering also acceptance more in general. So sometimes it's not only about self-esteem or having a more positive view of themselves, but it's also accepting accepting vulnerabilities, accepting mm. also maybe some traumatic events, or accepting the fact that life is difficult or that that not always it is possible to realize all all uh, dreams that you that a person yeah. may have so acceptance is really a core important issue and also for example acceptance and commitment therapy has the same focus so there are you know some overlaps with also other techniques but the idea is that uh, by accepting you're not uh, you know, demoralized about that, but mm-hmm. you consider that life is complicated, that situation can be complex, and then the best you can do is accept and take the best of that, make make mm. a, the situation worthy for you, despite the fact that not everything is perfect. Mm. Great. That fantastic answer. I think, uh, yeah, more and more people could be doing with that message, I think. Um, so you've been doing this for 
almost 20 or maybe more than 20 years um, focused on, on well-being therapy, which is incredible. I think that's been a recurring theme in these conversations. This is, um, I think, maybe episode eight or nine. I can't remember. But um, the the recurring theme has been how slow this process is, you know, especially if you want to do it the right way and get and make sure that you're um, doing things safely. You said that you started off or the first amb- ambition was really about recurrence. So worrying about, you know, people, um, their symptoms returning back um, to their lives. In this last 20 years, have you seen that the addition of the well-being promotion has had a bit of a lasting effect on the treatment outcomes? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. I think that's really an important message that, that I would like to, to share to the audience and to the people mm. listening to us because I think it's really, it's not only about uh, believing science, is seeing things happening in the life of your patients. So if uh, I just uh, work with symptom-oriented approach, could be, yeah, CBT approach or behavioral or thing traditional therapy mm-hmm. um, very likely very likely people would call me after six months after one year saying well doctor I'm back again with my panic attack I'm back again with my low mood and things like that mm. if we add some specific work on self-acceptance or identifying some character strength or being aware of one vulnerability and one strength or having a more deep sense of meaning in life in my perspective very few clients call me again or maybe they can call me but they are in a totally different position and they are more aware of themselves. Maybe they just need to have uh, like um, a couple of conversations with with mm-hmm. the, the therapist just, you know, to make a little bit of order in their thoughts. But they are not as bad as they they, they were when they have the, the first episodes of their illness. So in my opinion, really, really, a bit of uh, therapy on, on, on identifying what's well-being in your life mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. how you can reach it is really a turning point, a turning point for, for, for you and forever, basically, for the rest of life, something that it is really worth doing. Yeah. No, I, I completely believe that. Um you know, there are all these um, models of this idea of personal recovery. I'm not sure whether that's um, very familiar for your work or, for, sorry, very relevant, that idea of, for example, the CHIME framework. So um, the, for, for people that are listening that haven't heard of this before, there's a bit of a distinction between personal recovery and clinical recovery, where clinical recovery is basically a clinician having assessed that you no longer have um, a disorder or you no longer have, you know, um, significant levels of, of, of symptoms, whereas personal recovery is more often in a, in a recurrent disorder or in something that might be chronic, um, where, you know, sort of clinical recovery is not on the table as an option for, for at least some amount of time, uh, but instead you focus on what recovery actually means to you. And so there's a model that's out there called the CHIME model, where it's basically saying, um, you know, what we should be focusing on for personal recovery is connection, hope, uh, identity, meaning, and empowerment. Uh, it sounds like you're touching on so many of those aspects with your work. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and I've, I've uh, so far I've discussed about uh, common mental health issue like anxiety, mm. depression, panic attack. But we are using well-being promotion also, for example, with chronic disease. Uh, we have used it with uh, with Parkinson patients, for example. A colleague of mine is doing really? a wonderful work with, with that, or with other um, yeah chronic conditions that basically, as you state, they have no possibility of having a clinical recovery, but rather is identifying and promoting uh, coping, positive coping strategies, basically, which uh, is uh, extremely important for the patients, mm. but also for the family, for the family members, because they transform the chronic illness uh, or the degenerative illness, for example, as Parkinson's disease, they're transforming that into a um, source of meaning for the family, mm. for the couple, for the for the for the clients themselves or herself so it's uh, really uh, uh, in line with with this uh, personal recovery approach yes yeah, yeah. well and so it um you know like we said you've been you and and um and and father and and the rest of the team have been working along very hard for the last 20 years with a you know a significant amount of evidence now behind you how has this well-being therapy been received in Italy and around the world? Well, um, in Italy at the beginning, it was a little bit difficult because uh, all the, pos the positive psychology movement was not really so welcomed <laughs> in, the, in the, let's say, Latin Mediterranean uh, part of Europe compared okay. to US or... or uh, also Australia, I mean, where, where it was much more uh, welcomed. Uh, but now yeah. things are very different, yes. Can I ask why do you think that was? Mm, I think because uh, of a little bit of skepticism about mm -hmm. the, um, uh, the, 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 the American approach, the poor suite of happiness thing or the so one of the core core answer uh, question sorry that I, I received was yeah you are you are researching on positive psychology but is there a negative psychology and what the rest of psychology thing also my colleagues I mean I, I was at the beginning it was quite quite uh, um, there were quite resistance into understanding yeah. the, but now things are very different. And we have also um, scientific societies in Italy, in Europe, in every Mediterranean country, we have societies of positive psych national society of positive psychology. So the situation is much, much different. Mm -hmm. um, so it means that nowadays uh, either well-being therapy or other positive interventions are really very, very much welcomed, not only uh, or not exclusively in the um, clinical settings, but, uh, uh, but more than that, for example, in schools or yeah, yeah. in educational settings or combined with other uh, quality of life interventions, as I mentioned it, with uh, chronic conditions, uh, maybe in hospitals, maybe in also with with personal. We are working on on promoting resilience in uh, um, healthcare workers, for example, 
after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it means that uh, the interventions for promotion for the promotion of well-being are much more expanded now and well accepted, absolutely well mm -hmm. accepted. Yeah, I wonder because I think that the same is happening here in Australia and I think definitely the clinicians in Australia were very um, skeptical of positive psychology in the early days and, and fair enough, I guess, in some respects. Um, but I think it is much more common that you would hear that a clinician would um, integrate something like mindfulness or some of these sort of more positive psychology interventions into their work. But I'm I'm not sure whether they'd actually be aware that there's quite a manualized approach of well-being therapy that you've that you and your team have developed. So do you, do you, do you hear much reception from around the world specifically for your work? Well, uh, well, the manualized approach, uh, to be honest, to be, I'm trying yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I think it's important, especially if you are in the first stage of your professional career. Yeah. So you basically, yeah. you're not so, experienced as a therapist in general in general mm -hmm. so that's when mm -hmm. a manual can be useful because you can read you can have an idea of what to do of what not to do basically mm -hmm. but as time progress i'm i'm uh, more convinced that uh, the promotion of well-being can be done also in a more uh, spontaneous way so what I've been thinking, and maybe I'm, I will write something soon, is not the manual or the, um, uh, edu the, the education in, in positive psychology or positive psychotherapy, but rather is the attitude, the, the therapist attitude toward will be, ah, which is really different. So it's the idea that you, as a clinician, yes, it's important to consider symptoms, but if you have a positive outlook, the way you see, the way you conceptualize, you formulate your case is very different. Mm. And that's exactly where I think uh, you don't need necessarily a manual for promoting well-being. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about that if, you, if, you, um, if you're happy to give away some of the, the spoilers of what you'll be writing about. Because I'm imagining, I, I remember I, I bought a book on... Um, person-centered care and they had a really interesting table in there of how like a, a sort of typical clinical psychologist would interact with their patient or client compared with how a disability worker would work with their client and it was very much basically what they were characterizing is that the clinician like the the therapist clinician to client relationship was very much um uh, a hierarchical sort of relationship, whereas the um, disability support worker was much more of a, a peer sort of advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not me. You're not coming to me for help. I'm here to work with you so that we mm -hmm. can reach the goal together. Is is that a bit like what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Sometimes the patients ask me, "Well, okay, doctor, now what should I do?" And yeah. I, a little bit with, with a little bit of humorism, I said, well, I don't know. I have no idea. You tell me. <laughs> so, and it's, uh, I mean, 
uh, I've been discussing with other colleagues, for example, uh, other um, clinicians are working with the solution-focused therapy, for example. Okay. And they have the same approach. So the therapy is not uh, necessarily and uniquely about uh, doing something or solving problems, but it's... Mm -hmm. uh, finding together solutions, discussing together, reflecting on why the person is, is in that uh, stressful condition and maybe try to change or fitting a little bit better with the environment, with the, con with the context. And I'm mm -hmm. referring to the work of Todd Cashton about flexibility. I'm referring mm -hmm. about... Uh, the work of uh, Frederick Benick about positive CBT or solution-focused therapy. Uh, I'm referring also to the work of uh, uh, for promotion uh, for the promotion of post-traumatic growth, where the idea is to be an expert companionship. So I don't think that this uh, hierarchical relationship is uh, really therapeutic. Mm. In in the promotion of well-being maybe with symptoms uh, maybe maybe with symptoms maybe yes because the person is really um in a state where he cannot really take care of himself or herself sure but when it comes to change something in in one's life the expert is the person not the therapist yes yeah yeah, no, fantastic. I, I really do believe that. And I wonder then maybe, maybe like you kind of make a switch or, you know, it's not like it's a black and white, it's maybe all gray where you switch from symptom reduction to sort of well-being promotion and forwards and backwards, but whether that relationship should start a little bit hierarchical then becomes sort of like a, the, the advocate companion, or do you think it should be advocate companion from the beginning? Well, it depends. I mean, there are some patients that uh, really need to be taken care of. Mm. And uh, maybe they are the one who, where symptoms are more intense, or maybe they are uh, less experienced, or they are maybe younger. So I'm working also with students at the University of Bologna, so maybe they really need some kind of guidance. Uh, but for example, if we think about uh, middle-aged clients or maybe older clients, in that case, uh, I think that the guidance is not necessarily the, 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 the best approach because maybe the companionship, the, the try to understand the empathy, uh, empathic approach uh, probably is more welcomed by the clients. Sometimes mm. there are clients who are a little bit resistant about the idea of, uh, you know, therapy, therapist. I'm, I'm not crazy, doctor. I'm not crazy. So that that's important to to to, to um, reassure them and say, sure. well, I don't think you're crazy. I think you you need to to, to some 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 help to work these things out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I'm just thinking what we, we spoke about, um, you mentioned, I guess, the skepticism uh, that was perceived in Italy. I was wondering whether, now I look at Italy probably with um, maybe rose-colored glasses some, sometimes, but um, I wonder whether the sort of 
we've spoken about this briefly before we started recording, but recording, but the the protective factor of um, culture in Italy. I wonder whether um, I wonder whether Italians were maybe perceiving um, a lack of well-being, maybe as much as say Americans or Australians may have been, probably without such a a social and warm culture. Um, so you know, maybe like it was a more conducive environment for positive psychology messaging. Do you think that the the sort of I saw that you did a study on um, or or a book chapter might have been on well-being um, culture in Italy, Greece, uh, Portugal, and Spain? Would you you know what do you think of that? Well, yes, I'm, I'm. I will share a little bit of the content of the of the of the book. Please, the book chapter a little bit. I mean, um, well. First of all, I think that when it comes to Italy, but also Spain or, or Portugal, the Mediterranean area, I think uh, uh, that uh, the quality of life is a little bit better compared to um, to other, for, for example, American lifestyle, something like that, at least in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships or mm-hmm yeah rhythm of life in chance mm-hmm. of uh, having a more community type of life so that's I, I think it's a very important difference and the other um, difference I think is uh, um, especially in the concept of optimism and pessimism mm-hmm. um, I think that Italians but also Portuguese, and a little bit of the Mediterranean area, maybe they do not put so much emphasis on optimism and rather they enjoying a little bit of pessimism, a little bit of cynicism, which is more mm-hmm. culturally um, embedded. I mean, uh, for example, if we think about uh, people from Southern Italy or in Italy in general, they tend to be a little bit more scaramantic, you say so. So they don't want to put so much emphasis on positive things. Okay, okay, okay. So they're they're romantic towards um, the tough times of life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Or yeah. they prefer to think that uh, something bad might happen, and then if not. Uh, Hippie <laughs> Okay. Yes, okay. it's uh, it's normal. It's okay. We can manage that. So that's the I think the the, the, the cultural approach. So we are not okay. Op- so it's optimism. So something like um maybe you're saying sort of like a more of an Australian or an American uh, mindset might be um, an expectation of good things, um whereas the whereas uh, the Italians don't necessarily have that expectation and therefore they're less disappointed when when it may not happen. Exactly, exactly. So um, you were saying, you just mentioned the Southern Italy. I have to just, I guess, point out the fact that my uh, my grandparents are all from the South of Italy. So I, I definitely understand that um, that mentality for sure. And, and obviously they're migrants following a war. So they've kind of come with a, with a different mentality to, to this country. Um, I wonder whether... Um, you know the thing that we we characterize. Well, I think we have a funny idea about Italy and Australia, like particularly sort of the the, the families of of migrants, because um, I've even heard stories of sociologists wanting to understand the um, Italy in the fifties. They actually came to Australia to see what the migrants were up to, because they 
actually kept behaving um, as they were in the 50s. They sort of were almost like a, a frozen moment in time. Um, whereas I think Italy um, probably progressed and modernized almost more than the Italian migrants did in, in Australia and, and maybe in the US as well. Um, has, have you heard much about that kind of that idea? Yes, well, I think that the, the main important difference now following what's happening basically around the world is the type of Italian society. So nowadays it's much more uh, inclusive of other ethnic uh, minorities. Mm. For example, we have many migrants from Africa, from Northern Africa, but from Africa in general, from Afghanistan, from all the uh, country where, unfortunately, nowadays we have uh, uh, wars. Ukraine, Ukraine uh, uh, migrants, many of them. So I think that now Italy, compared to your, your parents' idea of Italy, is a culture, is, is a society where there are really different, different uh, ethnic uh, um, groups compared to yeah. the 50s or the 60s, where basically mm -hmm. Italians were all Italians. <laughs> Nowadays, we have Italians that have uh, um, origins from uh, Morocco or uh, Tunisia or, uh, or also the Balkans, many people from the Balkans. So nowadays, especially in... in um, in, in uh, big cities, uh, the, 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 the community and the society is very much uh, different and multicultural. And I think it's a very important and uh, uh, positive things because, you know, mm. integration and differentiation is, is, is important for modern societies. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, I understand that. I think probably the, the, the cultural values that I think have stuck around here for the migrants have been really around um, very strong family ties, very strong fa family values uh, on the importance of, um, you know, sort of intergenerational contact. So being very close with grandparents and, 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 um, and, and cousins and things like that. Um, Obviously, they're all from the south too, so they had probably quite a different s standard of living compared to those in the north. Um, but but I think the the things that we've probably looked looked you know back to our relatives that, that are still in Italy or, or or just what you see around is like things like the passion um, that you see in Italians, which I could imagine translate to a culture of well being. You know, this idea of like you said, going and finding an aperitivo. Which is which almost strikes me as um, a non-negotiable element of many Italians' lives. <laughs> I remember, for example, that um, <laughs> I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I remember we we when I was in high school, we did a lot of exchanges, and we had Italian kids lived here, and, and then we went to Italy as well. And um, I remember the Italian kids coming to my school and saying, like, but at the end of at the end of the school day, you, everyone just goes home, and and that's it. You know, no one goes to the piazza, no one goes and <laughs> spends time with friends. So it's like th that, that type of thing must be, uh, that's a fundamental difference for our well-being of our societies. Exactly, exactly. So that's what I referred before when I said that, in my opinion, uh, the Mediterranean culture, Italians, but also again, Spanish or Portuguese individuals, they have a better quality of life because they... Mm. They are not only school or work and home, but rather they 
expand a little bit their daily activities in including some community life, could be going to the piazza, could be uh, going for a walk, uh, could be mm -hmm. doing some shopping or, ve or very, very uh, trivial things like the aperitivo or the coffee together. And that's really what uh, gives you the opportunity to enlarge your perspective. So your day is not only about working and doing your homework duties, but rather also to encounter other people, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely understand that. I do often wonder as well, this might be more trivial, but the exposure like in the old world, um, you know, the exposure to art and, and history like is, is basically unavoidable. Um, you know, the, the, the various um, buildings and fences and bridges and things that you would see, which, um, you know, sort of in the new world, you're not exposed to that um, as, as, as uh, readily as you might be in, in those countries that you mentioned. Yes, yes. And, and maybe this is also uh, the reason why we, we like to, to, to keep tradition as they are, because we see tradition mm. everywhere. It can be a church, mm. can be a piazza, can be like a monument and uh, everything reminds of something before us and every, the, the, the food. So the food, it's uh, very traditional. I mean, every part of Italy has its own uh, special dish. <laughs> And uh, it's uh, so basically, yes, I mean, every time you go out, you are uh, embedded in this uh, culture uh, that reminds you of where you come from. And maybe it is mm. important also to give you a sense of you, who you are, a sense of identity um, and also a sense of uh, preserving what's uh, you you have received from the past. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's really interesting. Um, what's your favorite aperitivo? Can I ask quickly? <laughs> oh, is there such a thing? Oh well, it could be. Well, I like uh, white wine, so okay. a little bit fruity white wine. <laughs> that's okay, my great. enjoyable drink. <laughs> All right, very nice. Yeah, are, are you from Bologna, by the way? Uh, close by, close by. Not okay. not Bologna city, city, but close by. Okay, great. Yeah, and so I mean, and then I mean, as with any culture, they're the extremes of both. You know, whatever is good in too much um, can can be can become harmful. And I'm thinking in terms of of soccer, uh, you know, the the soccer and and the passion. Um, you see that firsthand. Some of the some of the downsides that happen in in uh, the country too. So it is something that has to be managed in, and controlled in some way too, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I think that that's the other. Uh, idea of, uh, of and that's important also in therapy. I mean, everything put at extreme is bad. I mean, you can be extremely passionate and then becomes uh, obsessed with 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 something. Can be soccer, can be food, can be uh, wine, or can be any any anything. I mean, uh, one of the problem that I usually or very often i explain to to my clients is exactly these things here that there's nothing wrong in being passionate about something there's nothing wrong about having this uh, sense of purpose and things like that but put at extreme level and that's uh, 
where also uh, the positive psychology uh, 2.0 is 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 uh, is uh, bringing about. So everything has to be managed with. Uh, uh, with a more uh, uh, flexible approach, a more balanced mm. approach, more nuanced approach. So also the passion, also the, 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 the culture, uh, the sense of identity, everything should be integrated in a more flexible way because, uh, as I mentioned before, context and life situations tend to be very complicated and complex nowadays. So it is important mm. to be... Uh, open to change a little bit to modify your attitude to be more uh, in line what 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 with the the environment request mm. Mm. yeah there was a there was a book that someone um passed to me a, a professor that was here in australia but he's he's actually moved back now i think to milan he um he talked to me about he passed me this book uh, about italicity i don't know if you've ever heard of this mm-hmm. yeah Oh, you have? Yeah. Okay, great. So I, I didn't know whether it was very popular or not, but that idea of, um, it was kind of speaking to what I was thinking that I, I, I do believe there's probably something in that, that Southern Mediterranean culture, um, that could become almost a, a well-being export to the rest of the world. And it has nothing to do with nationality and it has nothing to do with, um, you know, uh, race or skin color or, um, passports or anything like that. But it was a commitment to some of the things that, that um, are highly valued in that part of the world. And I think it was things like, uh, you know, a strong commitment to design, to passion, to quality, um, to fashion, and more fashion in the sense of like um, a style. Um, and this idea is, you know, are you sort of familiar with this? Yes, yes, but you maybe it's important to if you want to share it with the audience, it could be a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was this. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting because I've you know we sort of have observed the 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 life lessons I guess that we've picked up from our grandparents and what we see in our in our relatives that remain in Italy, and and there are aspects I think that are that are culturally Italian, um, in some parts of Italy, say, but. For example, if we think about, you know, the trend of fast fashion, the idea that there are, you know, new clothes coming out every month now, like big companies just pumping out all these clothes, um, which are, you know, they they fall apart very quickly and, and um, don't last and whatever. Whereas, say, what we have seen, it's, and it's obviously not exclusive to Italy, what I'm talking about, but a, a population with a commitment to style um, and... and um, and and design both in a in a mac like in, in in appreciation for um for um manufacturing almost is i think what i'm talking about that actually that is a that is a culture that would actually resist against something like fast fashion if that makes sense so it actually is is um is um protected from some of these sort of global trends that we think might actually be doing harm uh in the world and to the world does that does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. But to be honest, also in Italy, these type of things, this type of factory are are changing and are very few because because the, the because of 
of the sustainability. They, it's uh, it's mm. very difficult to be competitive against uh, uh, big, big companies, international big company. And, and so it means that also this Italianicity that you were referring to, unfortunately, I don't know how long it will last because uh, I think it's very, very important and, and it is uh, absolutely um, sign of quality. I mean, uh, if you mm. think about uh, yeah, uh, clothes or shoes or maybe also cars that come from, from Italy, they are really the top quality, top quality. But unfortunately, quality requires time and requires investment, investment mm -hmm. in time, in money, product. And I don't know if it is sustainable with the type of, uh, of economy that the world yeah, or Europe yeah. has, has, has going through. And, and you mean, I guess, sustainable in the sense of um, financially sustainable, yeah. but it, because like the paradox is that the products that they're creating are actually extremely sustainable. Yes, yes, extremely sustainable, mm. but they tend to be a little bit more expensive than yes. the, 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 the typical big industry clothes or shoes. And so sometimes uh, mm, families, uh, average families do not really, cannot, cannot really afford that, even if yeah. in the long term it would be more sustainable, of course. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was an interesting perspective from this uh, from this professor from this uh, professor like I was talking about. Um, he he coming from Milan to Italy was uh, sorry from Milan to Australia was I think frustrated at the reputation that Italians had in Australia. You know because everyone was thinking about um, the migrants basically. So you know thinking about nonna, thinking about pizza, pasta, yeah. cooking, and these sorts of things. And he was saying like, you know. Um, this is a country of high-end manufacturing and high-end design, um, and and from a almost like from a sales and reputation perspective, he thought that this Italicity was was potentially a um, yeah competitive advantage for Italy um, going forwards. But yeah, it was it was just an interesting perspective. Sorry, that was I don't know whether that was a, a bit of a diversion from well-being, but in I can see that it has very close parallels that a culture that has a as a um, focus on these aspects um, would end up with that quality of life that you mentioned or with higher levels of well-being. Yeah, I mean, also the aesthetic perspective is, I think, is very important also in, in, in uh, being able to appreciate and evaluate beauty, for example, mm. beauty and quality. Mm. And sometimes that's exactly um, what, uh, what uh, is implicitly uh, embedded in Italians or people in, in, in Europe because they are, they are exposed to beauties, to monuments, to uh, artworks, uh, ancient artworks, and, and, uh, and being able to appreciate that is part of, of life and it's part of also um, yeah, promoting well-being because uh, once mm. you are able to appreciate uh, a uh, good wine or good clothes or uh, also the, 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 the way you look with that dress. It's something, uh, of course, important also for your mental health. I mean, again, one of the signs, especially for women, but not only for women, that 
depression may start coming again is when you don't uh, care about what you're dressing, what you don't care about your external look. And, and, and so uh, having a more, uh, let's say, Italian <laughs> uh, perspective on that may help clinicians to have a better sense, sense of what's happening in, in their clients, right? <laughs> so, so Yeah, that... no, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I forget the author of that book. I'll, I'll find it. But he was sort of talking about um, he would call that a, a person who has these qualities, he would call them italic because oh. in his perspective, the qualities um, outdated the country or the nation of Italy, which I just thought was very interesting. I think he said, for example, you know, Dante Alighieri would never have heard of Italy, uh, but he was in Ita he was an Italic. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. But yeah. It was a. It was a strange. It was. Yeah. yeah. It was a strange sort of. It was kind of like historical. But uh, anyway, sorry. I don't know if that's just been completely random and people have just <laughs> said just like I came here for well-being. Now you're talking about all this stuff. Um. So I mean that was that was um. You know, the sort of the cultural thing, I don't know that many people are doing that type of research. I don't know whether you've come across it so far. Like you've obviously written this chapter, but is that something that um, you're sort of hearing more and more about, like the cultural influences on well-being? Yeah, I think it's one of the, the other, well, I'm not an expert in, in cultural psychology, but I think it's from what I've heard and also in conferences in Europe, but also in the, the rest of the world is that um, well-being and cultural influence is becoming really a, a, an issue, a, a theme to be investigated, to be understood a little bit better. Mm. So mm -hmm. if uh, at the beginning, positive psychology was very much Western oriented, also in defining well-being and uh, happiness and things like that. Nowadays, uh, there is a more uh, an integration with different cultural perspectives. So, for example, I, again, this idea of optimism is I think it's very, very, very much uh, American. <laughs> in Europe, we are not so optimist. In Italy, not for sure. I mean, Portugal, not for sure. And the thing is, we don't value optimism at that much. So that's important mm. because you cannot just promote optimism if that's not a value in the society, in the community, right? Of course, it doesn't mean that we we that pessimism is is good is okay. I mean, pessimism can be associated with depression, <laughs> with anxiety, with many uh, mental health issues. So again, this uh, balanced, nuanced approach, I think, is my my take home message, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. and maybe well-being therapy is italic in the sense that it is really much tailored. So as the quality of a good uh, dress or a good shoes is uh, made on the, the, the specific need of that, that uh, client, the same is the clinical approach that we have developed. Yeah. So the manual is more for educational purposes, but then the way you interact with, with the client is really in line with this italic approach. So tailoring uh, everything uh, with with the client and based on his own uh, uh, specific needs yeah yeah great 
All right, very cool. So what I thought we could just finish the conversation with is that you were telling me um, in the sort of as we're communicating to organize this um, conversation that you've been working on a grant. And I think that this is an aspect of a researcher's life that people that aren't researchers do not have any understanding (laughs) of. Um, Firstly, because I think, as you mentioned it, basically when I'm writing the grant, everything else basically stops. Um, there's a lot of pressure because obviously this, this comes with a career. Sometimes it comes with a career. Like, you know, I don't have a job if I don't win this grant. Um, but it comes with progression and, and being able to do the parts of the research that you're actually interested in. So it would be great to hear about this grant that you've recently submitted if, if you feel, um, up to that. Um, but mostly like hearing about how does it work in Europe? Like, have you got, um, European collaborators or, or, you know, how, how, how's the process of writing this grant been? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Matt, for, for mentioning this, because it gave us the opportunity to, to talk about, uh, yeah, positive psychology in Europe in general and positive psychology yeah. research. So basically this is, uh, uh the, the grant that I have, uh, just submitted is a European grant. So it means that the European commission gives money. Uh, it has a program called horizon Europe. And the program began basically immediately after the pandemic and will last until 2027, right? So it's a program where there are money put into specific teams for, uh, to, to be basically investigated by researchers. So the, 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 I think the, the peculiar aspect of European research when founded by the European commission is that the European commission has already decided some topics that need to be investigated because mm-hmm. they are basically a problem. Uh, they, 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 yeah, they are a priority pro- area. Exactly, exactly. So basically, the priority area now is the uh, basically the healthcare system yeah. because, of course, it has been absolutely stressed out by the, 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 the pandemic. And because the, the pandemic emphasized the, the, the stress, the problems, the extreme uh, severity of the condition of the healthcare system uh, in, in uh, all over Europe, basically. And then in certain countries more than in others. For example, in Italy, we have this uh, uh, uniqueness of the um, national health system and so it means that for basic care, citizens does not do not pay for for going to the hospital for basic care. Uh, and this is, of course, something that needed to be preserved. So the grant we submitted was basically uh, based on promoting resilience according to the positive psychology perspective for healthcare workers. So it means that instead of studying burnout uh, and uh, stress uh, and negative things in in, um, medical doctors and nurses, social workers and so on, we, yes, we studied those things, but with a positive approach. So Mm -hmm. we studied also coping mechanism, optimism, um, eudaimonic well-being, purpose in life, Because basically, in our experience during the pandemic, doctors and nurses and those who did their 
crucial job in, 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 in a healthcare system was totally driven by their meaning in life, by their sense of engagement, by their sense of uh, generosity, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so the idea is to uh, basically collect data on those issues and see how these data are protective in terms of burnout and stress for healthcare workers. And uh, so that's basically essentially what we, we, we have uh, tried to, to put up to, together with uh, colleagues from Spain, Germany, um, um, uh, Switzerland and uh, other countries, nine countries, basically around, all around. Uh, really? Europe. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. And so is part of the research study to sort of be tracking some of these, these traits, but also are you thinking about interventions or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. And then there is also the intervention part. If of course the, 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 the grant will be funded, <laughs> let's keep our finger, finger crossed. <laughs> Very optimistic for an Italian. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, the intervention is totally, totally, uh, totally taken from the positive psychology perspective, because basically what we want to do is to have uh, a positive intervention at single healthcare workers. So basically a sort of well-being therapy uh, done with healthcare workers, Great. helping to identify their meaning in life, uh, their sense of purpose, their sense of connection with, for example, colleagues and so on. But then we have also a positive intervention taken from the uh, positive organization approach. Mm, it mm. means that we look for, for example, uh, work engagement or by asking uh, um, uh, employers to consider their employees' point of view in improving yeah. the delivery of healthcare. So basically, yeah, yeah. Combining uh, not only, a, let's say, a clinical intervention, but really a positive intervention for the healthcare system. So this was the idea, basically. Great. Yeah, I'm glad to hear. I, I'm, I, I really hope that you win. I'll, I'll tell you now as well, because, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just because it deserves to win, I think. But uh, that idea. But I, I'm why I think that, why I'm impressed by that idea, I think, is that you often hear of this friction between like, where do we work? Do we work at the individual level and try and make them like more resilient and give them the skills? And others would, would say that that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a only a short term way to be thinking about this. We have to be thinking about the structure of the organizations that they're within. And, and I think the answer is exactly the way that you and your team are going, which is it's actually both, right? Yeah. We need to be thinking about both the individuals and the organizations that, that contains them. So, that's that's really exciting. Um, how long did it take to write the grant? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it took so what basically from September to to, to April. Uh, but seriously, it, yeah, yeah. But it was uh, the idea came much much earlier. So we start working yeah. on that uh, before, and we put together. Well, I put the, 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 the effort on organizing the, 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 the group of, of researchers, right. 
But then, of course, I'm not, uh, uh, organ I don't work usually with uh, organization psychology approach. So there are other colleagues in Spain that are absolutely um, important uh, expert in positive psychology applied to organizations. So they did a huge work as well, and we put it together. So hopefully Fantastic. we'll receive the grant, hopefully. <laughs> and how long would the project go for? Four year, four year. If, One? If, four, yeah. Oh, for four years, yeah. Four sorry, years, sorry, yeah. for four years, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, that's that's awesome. So, and and just in terms of like workload, just so we can sort of um, explain this to to um, the audience who might not be familiar, like how how much work, you know, you said you were doing it from September through to April. What does that mean? Is that is that just something you can fit into your normal day, or or how does that go? Oh yeah, you should you should work a little bit harder, especially as in my case when you have like uh, teaching duties as well. So yeah, basically, yeah. you need to write the grant in the template that the European Commission provide you with. But the problem is that the template has a restricted number of pages. So the effort mm -hmm. is to condensate all your ideas and the reason why yeah. you should get funded <laughs> in, in this uh, number of, of, of uh, pages. But then the problem is problem is not a problem. The effort is that uh, there is all the scientific rigor that you are yeah. asked to do. But the European Commission is also asking to imagine the impact that your work can have, not yeah. only at scientific level, but also at economic level, at society level. So it means that you have to write pages uh, on uh, imagining what uh, w what will happen if your your project is 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 founded and how. Uh, the life of European citizens would change following your approach. Mm. So it means that there are specific uh, um, pages dedicated to that. And then uh, the other huge work is the budget. So to combine <laughs> all, the, all the budget and uh, and in that case, uh, Unibo is 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 providing some some people that help you with with the budget because of course professors yeah. are are not uh, expert in economics, and not essentially. So yes, we have helped also in the, in that case. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But well. Uh Oh, sorry. It's a process of accommodation. So you need to accommodate your ideas and if they are sustainable, financially sustainable, how it can be done. So it's a very complex, a very complex activity and hopefully rewarding, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, look, that's actually, that's probably the good point as well, isn't it? Is that you have absolutely no guarantee that all of that effort... Um, is 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 rewarded and, and maybe that there might not be an opportunity to write this grant again and put it somewhere else um so that's it's it's uh it's an important thing for people to understand um and i so i could imagine that that sort of that imagining of the societal benefits must have been pretty straightforward like pretty easy to imagine the societal benefits of having a healthcare system of not stressed not burnt out staff members um, but we've worked a little bit in healthcare in our work here in Australia, and um, it was certainly 
a difficult setting because there's shift workers, there's, you know, incredibly busy people. Um, there's all sorts of different professions, people that are there for only certain amounts of time. How much are you sort of planning to, um, like, would you be delivering wellbeing therapy one-on-one one -on -one or would it be in groups? So how would you be planning to do that? Both. I mean, yes, okay. I, I agree absolutely with what you have said. So the thing is that, uh, uh, one of the um, requirements for this grant is also to imagining uh, or preventing some risks. And one of the risks that we, 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 we have uh, described is the implementation risk, exactly yeah. because of what you said. So it's very difficult to, to find the time and the opportunity to work with, with healthcare um, workers, especially in hospitals because they have shift, they are very busy, they are uh, difficult to be engaged. And mm. our approach was to um, have this project shared with the employers or the manager or the human resources in the hospitals that we have included so that mm. they can facilitate the, um, uh, the engagement of the single healthcare workers. And the delivery of the intervention would be basically on a single, um, single uh, healthcare worker in case of, uh, for example, specific problems or higher level of depression or yeah. burnout and so on. But most of the intervention would be more in the team or the equipe, the medical equipe, for example, we're planning to do some kind of positive intervention with them with positive communication style, with the conflict resolutions, with uh, uh, supportive or appreciative inquiry. So these are mm. on some of the activities that we have imagined for the, for the equipe. And then if possible, also to uh, include some of the human resources managers to have a better idea of the difficulties, but also of the motivation that uh, uh, can be promoted in their workers. Mm. So we call it a top down and bottom up approach. Yeah. 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 No, it's that, that sounds really powerful. I could imagine the other, th you know, so I guess why I brought up the implementation difficulty was that in terms of um, imagining the benefits, like, you know, there's kind of that idea that if you could make it work in a hospital, you could probably make it work anywhere, <laughs> um, which, which, you know, more or less. But the other side of it is that this is such a worldwide problem. I think my wife, um, we, we had a baby about six months ago and she had a... Um, a uh, midwife that she had a really strong connection with. And, you know, six months ago we, we saw the midwife and, and she was amazing. She was so energetic, um, so passionate. And I think my wife saw her like during the week um, just passing in the street. And she said, oh, I think I'm, I'm like ready to quit mm. completely burnt out. Um, can't keep it up. And I thought, you know, we're, we're at risk. Everyone's talking about healthcare costs and how that continues to grow. But I feel like we're almost at a risk of not even having a healthcare staff, um, you know, if we keep going at the rate that we're going. So this is certainly an important problem um, that you're addressing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the thing is that uh, even the most important, uh, the most motivated uh, healthcare worker, the most uh, uh, internally motivated person, 
cannot uh, cannot keep up with the demands of the of the work so it means that uh, we need to reorganize the healthcare system basically all over the world i mean all over mm. the world and uh, we need to balance uh, their internal motivation with external motivation that has to do for example with salary with a better um, uh, timing of their work uh, with uh, more uh, support, for example, to balance uh, their uh, family duties with their work duties, for example. So I think that we need to really support healthcare workers with uh, um, external, external uh, helps and mm. also financial helps, because one of the yeah. problems for quitting is that really they receive a very low salary, at least in Italy, for sure. I don't know in Australia or in other parts of Europe, but the, the, the public health care system has no, no, uh, not so good salary, let's say so. Mm. Yeah, you know, and the, those, um, those international differences will be interesting to see as well. This is a, this is a stupid question, but um, what language was the grant written in? English. English. Oh, really? Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Okay. I guess that's become the universal. Um, and and does it go to a European panel, or is it like is it is it national? So you you would present this to an Italian panel for no, judgment? No, no, no. It's a, a European panel. It's a European panel yeah. divided the, uh, by the the, the 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 topic that you are uh, calling for, and uh, yes, it the, it's a usually are four to five. Uh, blind reviewers that will comment on on the on the grant of the grant and they give a score in terms of excellence in terms of impact of your your project and only if you if you reach a certain threshold then you might go for a final check before receiving the the the, the grant otherwise wow. no. so it's a very competitive approach very competitive well, I wish you all the best luck. Um, when oh, when will you find out? Probably after the summer, late summer, okay. August, oh, end of August, yeah. or something like that. They had this challenge in Italy, uh, in Australia, where they were releasing um, the results like just before Christmas, and so really sort of ruining everyone's Christmas <laughs> for the people that didn't win the grant. Um, so I'm glad that the results will come like after summer so you can enjoy summer and then uh, then we can see how it goes after that. Well, let's say that for preserving my 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 well-being, I'm expecting a refusal so that if anything, <laughs> you see, when I was referring about the pessimism, <laughs> so I'm pessimistic about that because I know that it's very competitive and I know yeah. that there are at least... Uh, are there 42 projects in the same topic? Really? And basically they will find, find uh, four, five projects. Whoa. So yeah. basically I'm so that... realistically pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. And, um, well, good on you for persevering, basically, um, as as so many do. So, mm -hmm. um, thank you so much, Chiara. Uh, I, I just wonder, in terms of a last question, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think would be sort of interesting relating to your work or any sort of aspirations that we haven't covered? 
Well, what I think it's that maybe we didn't refer to adolescence, a younger age, because that's another um, life stage where I think it's so crucial to promote well-being. And mm. I know that many colleagues in Australia are doing great job in schools and educational systems. So I would like to focus on the importance of that work as well, because uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, it's a preventing, preventive work. And uh, I had some experiences in school as well, uh, some years ago. And it's not a clinical work, and it's not uh, what I usually do in my daily life, but I think it's enormously important. So I would really uh, appreciate what you, you, know, you guys in Australia are, are doing because you did a, a very, very important uh, work with students. So bravo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for bearing with the, the technical difficulties that we've had um this week and um really appreciate your time and um yeah best of luck for the grant thank you very much matt it was Bocca a lupo, as, as uh as they say grazie grazie okay thank you bye ciao ciao matt thank you bye all right. Thank you again to Chiara and thank you all for listening uh, once again to, to, um, to Researching Happy. So yeah, like we say, while this is fresh in your mind, share this episode with one person, uh, whether, it's a, whether it's a link or whatever, like and subscribe wherever you're seeing this thing um, and give us a rating as well. That makes a big difference on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. So uh, thank you and, and have a great day.